Welcome back to the commentary to the Mikra A Kodesh series, Holy Convocations. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of the commentary. Our um, festival in focus today is the Day of Atonement, otherwise known as Yom Kippur. And we've already studied part A to this commentary. If you have the written notes, we are now on the, or near the bottom of page two, where we are ready to introduce five types or categories of korbanot, of offerings or sacrifices. We're going to talk about the olah, the mincha, the shlamim, the chata'at, and the asham. The reason we need to talk about these types of offerings or these types of sacrifices is because it is the background necessary to fully appreciate the Yom Kippur ritual itself. Keeping in mind that the Yom Kippur sacrifice, the Yom Kippur service, is the holiest day of the on the calendar that Hashem prescribed for Israel to uh, proclaim in their set times. And um, all of the daily, weekly, and monthly uh, bringings of animals, as it were, pointed towards this once-a-year um, you know, event where the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, uh, and only then once, and then he would uh, make atonement for the entire corporate nation of Israel. So everything led up to this point. Well, we've got to get the background to that before we can fully appreciate how the Yom Kippur sacrifices um, play an important role for us today, both in Christian camps as well as Jewish camps. Okay, So what I'm going to do, as I mentioned earlier, is I've already recorded this information way back in our commentary near the book of Leviticus. Um, I'm pulling audio information from Parashat Vaikra, which was the actual first Torah portion as we opened up the book of Leviticus. So allow me to insert the audio at this point in time, and uh, it's going to run for probably a good half an hour or, or more uh, from that previous information. So if you hear me uh, talk about Parashat Vaikra, well, then that's because the information is coming from Parashat Vaikra as it's already been recorded. So let's now pick up the previous recording, starting again near the bottom of page 2, where we're going to start talking about the five types of offerings introduced in the opening pages of Leviticus. Now, these types of offerings, these five types of offerings that are introduced in the pages of Leviticus, Leviticus are broken down into the different categories, and that's where we're going to go next in this uh, study. We're going to look at, first of all, the olah, which is a burnt offering, which is mentioned in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Next, in order, and I'm going in order of the way they're given to us in Leviticus. <clears throat> next, we'll look at the mincha, which is sometimes translated as the grain offering, or other times it's translated as a fellowship offering. The mincha is mentioned in Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Next on the list, we'll study the shlamim, which is rendered the peace offering, um, or also that one sometimes rendered fellowship offering as well, uh, in your English translations. That's mentioned in Leviticus chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Then we'll look at the chata'at, which is the sin offering mentioned in Leviticus chapter 4 verses 1 through 35 as well as chapter 5 verses 1 through 13 and then we'll look at the asham which is the guilt offering mentioned in Leviticus chapter 5 verses 14 through 26 those five 
the olah, the mincha, the shlamim, the chata'at, and the asham. Those are the five categories of offerings that will span the entire range of the book of Leviticus. And indeed, as we study other subsequent sacrifices in the future, we'll find that they bear a resemblance to one of these five, or sometimes a combination thereof, of the of the five um, offerings that we're uh, studying right here. For instance, I'll just tell you right now, you'll find off, often that the olah is often brought, the burnt offering is also brought in conjunction with a, a grain offering. They're brought together at, at, at often times. So, um, within these five categories, we also need to break down um, a subcategory. We'll find out that the first three of these five, the olah, the mincha, and the shlamin, the first three could easily be considered free will offerings. Um, brought before Hashem by anyone at various times in the life of anyone in the community. By comparison, the last two, the Chata'at and the Asham, were required, they were mandatory, to make restitution for various types of sins. Such korbanot, um, such offerings, and I'm going to try and introduce a new Hebrew word to you uh, readers and you listeners. Korbanot, the root word korban, is singular for offering or sacrifice, and thus korbanot is sacrifices. Such korbanot, the uh, chata'at and the asham, are referred to in many places as expiatory. Okay, That is to say they affect um, sin. They affect atonement, whereas the first three by comparison are non-expiatory. That is to say they don't necessarily affect atonement. The expiatory korbanot shall occupy the bulk of the latter part of my commentary. Now, Chabad.org is going to supply us with uh, our standard descriptions for these first three korbanot. If you look at the footnote number 10, uh, you'll see that I'm taking this information from www.chabad, that's C-H-A-B like boy, A-D like David, dot org, slash parasha, slash in-depth, slash default, and then um, uh, more information given there. If you if you really are interested in going to Chabad.org's website, just go to Chabad.org and um, look for the Parasha uh, readings for this week or Parasha archives, and you can pull up the information there. Okay, let's go ahead. First offering is the Ola offering, and it's also referred to as the burnt offering. In fact, most of your English versions are simply going to call it the burnt offering. But I want you to know the Hebrew words because later on when we get down near... Um, some of the uh, technical terms, for instance, we're trying to explain which offerings relate to uh, which particular infractions, uh, which particular um, sins, particularly when we get down to the expiatory ones. It's important that we know that the language of the chata'at and the asham, the guilt offering, I'm sorry, the sin offering and the guilt offering, respectively, it's important that some of the language that we re- realize is interchangeable. Um, because a chata'ah is a class of sin, and a an asham is a class of sin, and yet, if you commit a sin, you're guilty, and the word guilt is asham, and so sometimes you can get uh, confused if you don't really follow the Hebrew terms a little closer than we're used to following them. First category of korban, the olah, the burnt offering. We're, um, if you're following all the written notes, we're near the top of page 9. Here's the quote from uh, Chabad. The first korban to be described is the olah. Of course, 
first one to be described in the book of Leviticus. And it's described as the ascending offering. It's commonly referred to as the burnt offering. Here's another reason why I'd like you to know the, um, the particular Hebrew terms. Because the word olah can refer to ascending as to, as to that which goes up. Picture in your mind the animals being placed on the altar, and it's not being eaten by the Kohanim, nor is it being eaten by the participants. Therefore, all of it goes up in smoke, except for the blood that's poured out on the altar, of course, and and, and such. The hide also doesn't get burnt, it gets skinned and, and removed. But all of it goes up on the altar, and as it goes up, as, as the ashes, the embers, and the smoke, and, and, and all of that... Uh, ascends heavenward, then the, the the word picture is described by this verb um, Allah or Olah, and uh, that's where we get the term for the category. The Olah itself goes up, it ascends. Your Bibles, your English Bibles, are variously going to translate this as the burnt offering. Some will describe it as the um, the uh, oh, what else do we have? The uh, the whole burnt offering. Um, the, the 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 smoke offering, uh, the 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 fire offering, or something to that effect, and so the the ola is the Hebrew word, right? This offering, um, whose distinguishing feature is that it is raised to God in its entirety uh, by the fire, which is atop the mizbeach there, the altar. The ola can also be a male or sheep or goat. Uh, I'm sorry, it can be a male sheep or a goat, in which case the same procedure is allowed. It does, there's no difference if it's either animal. Now, we can also, however, downgrade the animal when it comes to an olah. And I believe this speaks of the different economic statuses that we may find in ancient Israel. Some people can afford an, a, a male sheep or a goat. Other people who were less, um, how should we say, they didn't have as much money. <laughs> or maybe they weren't, weren't in a position where they worked for someone who had money. Maybe they were a slave and they didn't have their own money, but their master had a lot of money and their, their master wasn't going to permit them to, to take one of the larger animals, well then God allowed smaller animals. Let's keep reading. A turtle dove or a young pigeon, we're, we're talking about birds now, right, can also be brought as an ascending offering. And instead of being slaughtered through shechita, that's the process whereby the rabbis determined that God wanted the blood poured out completely while, if possible, the heart of the animal was still beating we took a very sharp knife and slit the throat, usually one or two, um, if I remember correctly, sh- uh, to shecht an animal, to slit its throat involved pushing the sharp blade forward once and then pulling it back towards the you know the person who's holding the blade. And that would uh, uh, give a clean cut. This, sh- sh- this, uh, this shechting, the shechita, um, done to an animal while it was still alive, obviously, uh, produced an effect that there was no pain. The animal didn't. In fact, the blade was so sharp, the animal's throat was cut before it realized uh, that it had even been cut. What's more, um, because of the where it was cut, where the animal's throat was was cut, then um, a certain nerve leading to the brain, the the pain center in the brain, is actually severed instantly, and so the animal doesn't really feel any pain either. It just basically just. It, it just dies, but it doesn't know it dies. I mean, one minute it's conscious, the next minute, no. And so this uh, procedure also allowed for the blood to be pumped out by the still-beating heart. This was important because later on we're going to find that God prohibited blood from being consumed. And at any location or at any instance, 
whenever an animal's life was, was being taken. Blood was always to be poured out. In this case, it's going to be dashed at the, on, the, on the altar, on the Mizbeach there out here in the Chatzar, in the courtyard. So the, 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 we're, we're talking about a larger animal where we could shecht its throat and easily catch the blood. But, but with a smaller uh, animal, such as a turtle dove or a pigeon, instead of being slaughtered through shechita, the cutting of the throat, the burden is is killed by Malika, when that's where the the priest or the Kohen um, officiating uh, takes his fingernail and he nips off the back, he nips off the head of the bird from the back of the neck, where he just pops it right off right there. Um, I think you get the idea of what I'm talking about. The blood, of course, either whether it was an, a larger animal or smaller, when the blood is applied to the wall of the altar, and the bird's crop, in this case, and its adjoining feathers are removed and then discarded. Just like the larger animal, the, um, uh, the Torah tells us that the uh, skin was discarded by this particular, um, in this particular instance of the Ola. So after the, um, after the blood is removed from the bird, um, the adjoining feathers and such are removed, then the bird's body is burned upon the altar. Thus, it is also an Ola. Uh, footnote number 11, as you'll see, is also taken from Chabad.org. Now, let's, let's look at some more details concerning this Ola. Let's, let's turn introspectively towards, perhaps, what is the meaning of this Ola? Why is this the first one mentioned? And why, later on in the Prophets, are we going to find that burnt offerings and, and festive offerings, um, uh, the Shlamim that we're going to talk about, why are these two offerings actually mentioned very often as we read throughout the rest of the Snach? Well, upon analysis, we see that the daily Olah service, the one that we talked about earlier, the, the Korban Tamid, the, the two lambs that are sacrificed daily, this service involved at least three different locations in, in descending holiness. If we were to examine the detail concerning this particular Korban, the three locations that we observe are that the animal is first brought to the coin and placed on top of the altar. That's the most holy place for this animal. That's where the animal is designed to go. After the animal is burnt down to ashes, some of the ashes are scooped away and they're put to a place right next to the altar. And that's still a holy place. They're not just discarded or anything like that just yet. They're placed next to the altar. And then if you remember... Or maybe you do, maybe you don't, and if not, we'll read about it in an upcoming Torah portion. Um, once the daily uh, sacrifices are completed and it's and it's nighttime, um, you know, the, the, there's a priest who officiates and makes sure that this altar is kind of smoldering throughout the entire night, that the that the ashes don't burn down completely, and he makes sure that there's always some spark there, there's there's some kindling flame there. Um, even if he has asked to add a little few little twigs, he's gonna make sure that this fire doesn't go out. So that in the morning the priest who begins officiating with the with the morning Tamid offering, you know, the Shacharit offering, uh, then he's gonna have something to He's going to have an existing flame there to place the new lamb on top of. And so at that point in time, the ashes that were collected and put next to the altar in that second holy place, they're going to be removed outside of the uh, the chatz or the, the courtyard, and they're going to be taken to a ritually clean place designated outside the camp. So we have those three levels of what we, what we might call descending holiness, on top of the altar, next to the altar, and then this ritually clean place outside the camp. In fact... For Rav Kook, which is Rabbi Abraham Isaac Kook, he lived from 1865 to 1935. He was actually the first chief rabbi of the land of Israel, appointed chief rabbi before the, the uh, Israel was a state. Um, for him, if 
you read through his notes, speaking of this Olah, the completely burnt offering was a metaphor for what? For the very highest level of contact between man and God. Why did he think of it this way? Well, he used to reflect that the fire on the altar reflects sublime experiences of inspiration and prophecy. At this level, he used to say, the material world is of no consequence. Everything gets burnt up on the altar. The fire totally consumes the flesh of the offering. That is to say, by comparison to the um, shlamim that we're going to read about here in a moment, no one eats any part of the Ola. It all goes to God. And we read, actually, at the end of chapter 1, reading about the Ola, uh, it's described as an as a re'ach uh, nichoach la'adonai. What is a re'ach nichoach la'adonai? A pleasing aroma to God. This fire goes up to him entirely, and he is happy. He's pleased because the worshiper has performed his duty. He's been obedient to the words of the Lord. And that's why Rav Cook is making these comments. The fire totally consumes the flesh of the offering, freeing man, as it were, spiritually from the shackles of his physical reality. In other words, the kindling of the holy flames on man's soul is outside the framework of normal life. Rav Cook saw this offering as a substitute. The offering, the korban, the olah, was a type and shadow of the person bringing the korban olah. And therefore, when the fire went up on the altar, it's as if the man's soul was on the altar, as if the man's body was on the altar, so to say. I mean, he's not too far from the truth, right? That the sacrifices are, uh, um, how do we say they are, they are go-betweens, they are trade-offs. We are supposed to be the ones being slaughtered. And yet God in his mercy allowed the animals to receive the death instead of us. We know this to be true. Anyway, um, Rabbi Cook was trying to make this, this connection and um, between the fire that goes completely up on the altar and uh, between uh, uh, the purpose of the person bringing this. Such divine interaction is beyond the ordinary structures of human existence, both individual and collective, he was used to saying. The Olah offering burns on the altar itself, by itself. Nothing else goes up there on goes up there with the Ola at this time. This belongs to God. It is a pleasing aroma to God. A Reach Nichoach La Adonai. Let's move on to the next one. The next offering that we encounter in our list of Leviticus is known as the Mincha, otherwise translated as grain offering. This next paragraph is entitled Mincha, Grain Offering. Let's again quote from um, from Chabad.org. Quote, And a soul who shall offer a meal offering to God. Meal offerings, called minachot in the plural, gifts, uh, are prepared of fine flour. Now, did you notice that I went straight from one definition of the mincha, grain offering, to another definition, gifts? What's the difference? Well, the, the word mincha is referred to as green offering. But the word mincha also means gift. That's the point. A mincha is a gift. Remember, these first three offerings are voluntary offerings. They are not mandatory. Anyone can bring them. They can be brought at any time. 
um, they are free will offerings. They're not required per se. At least the Ola later on became um, part of an ingredient in one that was not voluntary. But for now, just think of these first three as free will offerings. Anyone can bring them at any time as their heart was moved by um, by either the Spirit of God or just by their own heart. So this word mincha, which we later come to know is the uh, the um, uh, what do we say? The afternoon prayers, right? The mincha prayers. But before it was termed that, it was the grain offering. It was the gift. Therefore, the meal offerings called menachot, gifts, which is also a name of one of the tractates in the Talmud. Um, gifts, they are prepared of fine flour with olive oil and with frankincense. Very simple um, bread substance that we're talking about. The priest removes the kometz. I'm sorry, he removes a kometz, which is a handful um, a flower that he was able to actually grasp with the, if you're looking at your left hand, um, it would be the second, third, and fourth fingers on your left hand, the middle fingers. Uh, just exclude the thumb and the uh, the pinky, those three remaining fingers. He was to grasp the uh, an amount of handful by these three fingers, those three middle fingers. That's, what the, that's a kometz. And um, this amount was to be burned on the altar and the remainder is eaten by the priest. Notice, in the mincha, a portion is taken out, given to God, burned up on the altar, and then the rest, in 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 typical um, covenant meal fashion, is eaten by the priest, the one who's officiating. Now there are five types of donated meal offerings, five types of minachot. Let's list them. Number one, the standard meal offering, whose kometz is removed before it's baked. That's the one we just described. Number two, we had the baked meal offering, which came in two forms. Uh, uh, one of the forms was a loaf, or three, the flat matzot. That, that's, so now we've got three. We've got the standard, we've got the loaf, and then we've got the flat matzah, like a, the cracker type. That's three. The fourth um, type of mincha was what's known as the pan-fried meal offering. And then the fifth one was known as the minchat marcheshet. That was basically a deep-fried Mincha, uh, deep fried, like in a in a in a deeper pot rather than a shallow pan, like the like um, number four mentioned. So basically, if you think about it, um, the different types of minachot, uh, the names of them depending on how they're fried up and and whether or not a portion was removed and things like that. And um, um, these 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 bread offerings, these meal offerings, these grain offerings, these I think that the the, the um, does the uh, KJV call them cereal offerings? I can't remember. I don't have my KJV in front of me at the moment. But these offerings were very tasty. I mean, with a little bit of little bit of oil in there and uh, a fine flour, a little bit of frankincense. You get you beginning to get hungry now. Um, let's read a following rule concerning these particular minachot. The following rule applies to all of the meal offerings, including the loaves. Okay, no meal offering. This is a verse. No mealing offering which you shall bring to God shall be made leavened. None of the meal offerings that were made were allowed to be burnt in a leavened state. Even the ones that were loaves. Now, the reason we mention loaves is because typically loaves involve a little bit of rising, right? No offering which you shall bring to God shall be made leaven, for you shall burn no leaven, nor any honey, nor any offering of God made by fire. When the priest took the kometz out and he burned it on the altar there, even when it was a loaf, even when it was allowed to leaven, none of the leaven was to be burnt afterwards. That is to say, he had to take that little kometz out and throw it on the altar before any leavening could happen, which means we're, we're talking about something that took place very, very quickly. Because what does it take for leaven to show up? Just water? 
uh, the flour, one of the five grains that we're talking about here, of uh, which is uh, barley, oats, rye, spelt, or wheat. Those are one of the five grains that were historically used uh, to make these types of offerings. And um, thyme, right? You get water, you get one of those grains, and you get thyme, and... What do you get next? You get you get leaven. You get the uh, you get the chametz, and and that's not allowed on the altar. We're gonna find out later on that there are two offerings where the loaves are included in the offering. One is the shalmitoda, a uh, a type of a shlamim offering that we're gonna read about later on. And then later on, when we're reading about the festival of Shavuot or Pentecost, as it's um, known in Christian circles, then the loaves brought on Pentecost are also leavened. But the key ingredient is this, pun intended. In no case is leaven to go up on the altar burnt. Okay, Once you remove the komets, not the chametz, the komets, and throw it on the altar, once the priest did that, then he could bake it into a loaf, and there he might get some chametz, some rising of the dough, some fermentation of the dough. But that was after the fact, and it didn't go up on the altar. You guys following me so far? Great. Another rule that we learned about the mincha is that, according to another verse, quote, your every meal offering you shall season with salt. Never shall you suspend the salt covenant of your God. That's an interesting feature, too. You've heard of the salt covenant. This was where we get this uh, information. All of the korbanot, in fact, were offered with salt, and that's what um, Chabad.org tells us. This latter rule applies to all of the festivals. I'm sorry, all of the uh, all of the offerings. Another meal offering that's mentioned here is, uh, as I mentioned, is the... Um, well, maybe I didn't mention it. It's the Minchat Bikurim, also called the Omer. It's brought on the second day of Pesach, from the year's very first barley harvest. And in this Mincha, the kernels are roasted by fire before they're ground into flour. There's an extra step that's taken before um, it actually you know, moves towards the altar and things like that. Just some details that are interesting to know. Um, we don't know all the reasons why God gave every one of these details, but we do know that they were meant to be followed, and therefore, if we lived in ancient Israel, we needed to follow them. In addition, a meal offering accompanied all animal offerings. All of the, If you notice, a mincha is a non-animal offering. It's a grain offering. It doesn't have any blood involved. But whenever we got to uh, animal offerings, a mincha uh, was supplied along with the animal offerings. Okay, let's keep going. Next paragraph is entitled Shlamim, Peace Offering. Shlamim. This one's a real neat offering. This one is a very popular offering. You could say it is a uh, a, a, a festivity offering. It's a um, it's a group offering. It's a corporate offering, and the reason is because typically a representative from the family would bring this, and if we're gonna as we're gonna find out later on, it was eaten both by himself as well as. Um, some of the kuanim there. So it was kind of a, a family affair. It was a shared offering. Perhaps often uh, the whole family came when the shlamim was being brought to the uh, uh, the courtyard that day. The shlamim or peace offering could either be a male or female and either from the herd, in essence an ox or a cow, or a sheep or a goat. That's what we call from the herd or from the flock. When the Torah says from the herd or from the flock, the word herd refers to ox or cow and the word flock refers to sheep or goat. Now, like the Ola offering, the Shlamim, um, its blood was sprinkled on the altar. Remember, it's an animal offering. It's not a grain offering. The blood was, you know, it was shechted. Its, its throat was cut. The blood was caught, sprinkled upon the altar. Uh, the, the remainder of the blood, by the way, was poured out at the base of the altar. But unlike the Ola, which ascended in its entirety upon the altar, 
That's where we get the name Ola. The meat of the Shlamim was eaten by the owner, the person who brought it. The one who brought the offering got to partake of it this time. Two portions of the animal, the breast and the right thigh, however, were eaten by the Kohanim, the priests. So they're all sharing in this meal together. And this made for a unique type of korban, a unique type of, of festive experience. I keep using the word festive because in the Torah, the Shlamim is referred to as a, as a zavach. And the word zavach is, a, is, is sometimes called a festivity offering. Um, in fact, if I turn in my Torah to chapter... Three, uh, reading from the um, Stone Edition Tanakh, it says, "Quote verse one, chapter three, verse one: If his offering is a feast peace offering, a feast peace offering, the im zavach shlamim korbano im min hakorban hu, and this 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 language here, the im um, zavach zavach is a noun that uh, refers to this." type of offering. But the word zevach comes from the verb zavach, which means to slaughter. And that's why it's called a feast peace offering, a slaughtered offering. Um, perhaps it because it entails more, usually, you know, like if you kill one person, we say that's a killing. But if you kill a lot of people, we say that's a slaughter. Maybe the language here, slaughter, is referring to the fact that multiple people are going to, re, to, going to partake of this particular um, Incident. Anyway, the words zevach and zavach are also related to the word for the altar itself, the mizbeach, the uh, instrument or the um, piece of furniture that receives the uh, uh, the zevach, the slaughter itself, the offering. This offering, this korban, was eaten by more than just the participant. As I already mentioned, the kohanim get to eat of it. Uh, the breast and the right thigh are eaten by the priest. Only certain parts of the animal are going to be burned atop the altar, like the Ola. Part of it's burned, part of it's eaten. Let's read the part, let's read the verse here. The fat that covers the inwards, or the innards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them, which is by the flanks and the appendage of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. That's the part that goes up on the altar, and the rest gets eaten. Uh, Chabad goes on to say, if the peace offering is a sheep, Let's say it's not from a herd. It's not an ox or a cow. It's a smaller one. The whole fat tail up to the backbone was added to what I just read that goes up on the altar and gets burnt. Let's read the verse. And the priest shall burn it on the altar. It is divine food, a fire offering, a sweet savor to God. Notice that the shlamim is described as a fire offering. And then it's also described, like we read before, a nichoach. Uh, um, a, uh, um, a I'm sorry, it's described as an olav sort, a fire offering. It, part of it goes up to God, but part of it's eaten. That's why we need to know some of these Hebrew terms. But the part I wanted to, to emphasize is that last phrase, it is a pleasing aroma. Literally, a, an, an aromatic aroma is, is the Hebrew. Is, it's kind of... Um, it's redundant there. The, uh, it's kind of um, repeating the same word twice. It's, it's, it's trying to emphasize that it is, it, it is an aromatic aroma. That, that sounds redundant to us, right? Because these types of offering, the shlamim was offered to God on the altar, these specified veins of fat, which the Torah calls chelev, these parts of the fat are choice fats. They belong to God. They get burnt up on the altar. Therefore, 
they are usser. They are forbidden for consumption in all animals. We can't eat these fats. This is the forbidden fats, the chalev. This is the part that should be removed when we are partaking of kosher food today. We're not supposed to be eating the chalev, okay? It shall be a perpetual statute for your generations to all your habitations. All chalev and all blood you shall not eat. End quote. We're going to read more about these forbidden pieces of animals, the chalev and the dam, the, the fat and the blood respectively, in a different parasha. So listen for it when we come to that particular um, uh, section. Okay, let's keep going. I want to move now past the three voluntary offerings into a section where we're going to deal with the expiatory sacrifices. What do I mean by expiatory? Let me just uh, give you a kind of a standard dictionary definition. The word expiation is a verb, and it means to atone for. Atone for what? Atone for guilt or sin, right? Expiatory, atonement. We're now going to move into the more important or the more critical types of korbanot that we read about in the book of Leviticus. This next section is entitled Expiatory Sacrifices. A quote from the JPS commentary to Leviticus is in order before we study these last two types of korbanot. I need you to follow along with me very, very carefully now uh, to this section in my commentary. All right? Quote, Chapters 4 and 5 contain the laws governing expiatory sacrifices, the purpose of which is to secure atonement and forgiveness from God. These offerings are efficacious only when offenses are inadvertent or unwitting. We're going to talk about those two in a moment. They do not apply to defined or premeditated crimes. Whenever an individual Israelite or a tribal leader or a priest or even the chief priest or the Israelite community at large is guilty of an inadvertent offense or of failing to do what the law requires, expiation through such sacrifice is required. JPS goes on to say, the laws of chapters 4 and 5 here in Leviticus do not specify all the offenses for which such sacrifices are mandated. Did you catch that? The chapters don't really lay out exactly what these types of offenses entail. Instead, we may assume, they go on to say, as did the rabbinic sages, that there is a correspondence between those offenses requiring the expiatory offerings and those punishable by the penalty known as karet. Now, karet is the cutting off of the offender from the community. The person was, to use today's parlance, we would say they were um, excommunicated. They were put outside the camp back in those days. The expiatory sacrifices, JPS concludes, are required for inadvertent transgressions that, if committed defiantly, would in fact bring the offender the penalty of being cut off from the community. Karet, end quote. The footnote number 14 you'll see is from Baruch A. Levine, the JPS Torah Commentary to Leviticus Jewish Publication Society, 1989, and that was lifted from page 18. It's very important for you to listen now that we understand the category of sins being described here. Basically, there are two categories of sin that Leviticus is describing for us. And that's probably why we don't simply get an enumeration, a list, a simple list. Although when we get to the... Um, uh, the, the uh, let's see, is it... Um, when we get to the sin offering, uh, we're going to see that some of it's spelled out 
as well as some is spelled out in the, the guilt offering as well. But it's important that we understand for now that the Torah does not clearly describe sins of intent in easy-to-understand terms. To be sure, unintentional sins are represented by a very technical term in the Torah known in Hebrew as bishkaga. We're near, the t- we're near the bottom of page 11, about to move into page 12, so follow along with me in the written notes if you can. Bishgaga. Right? This is a word that's found only six times in Leviticus altogether. We're in the top of page uh, 12. Look at the footnote number 15, and you'll see in Leviticus um, all the locations where this phrase, bishgaga, the root word of shogeg, where this word shows up. Now, why do we care? Listen on. Tim Haig is going to remark on bishgaga in the short excerpt lifted from a commentary out of his on the topic of forgiveness. Quote, this is Tim Haig, a study of the words unintentional and intentional when describing sins reveals something different, however. Okay? Intentional and unintentional. In Leviticus 6, verses 1-7, through 7, the sins for which a person may bring a guilt offering, remember the word for guilt offering is asham, the sins for which an asham is required include lying, theft, fraud, perjury, and debauchery. All right? Those are actually spelled out in the Torah. Yet in Leviticus 4, the sins of a leader or a common priest for which a guilt offering may atone are called unintentional. And the Hebrew was bishgaga. Now, in Tim's opinion, or Tim's, um, um, uh, yeah, in his opinion, this is not actually a very good translation, this word unintentional. However, because it makes it appear as though one can lie, steal, defraud, perjure oneself, and engage in all manner of debauchery without direct intent to do so. You catching me? Um, You catching what I'm saying here? The Torah lists some of the sins under the category of Asham, and then it calls these unintentional. And yet it sounds as if a person can say, well, you know, I lied, but I didn't mean it. I committed fraud, but I didn't mean it. You know, I stole something, but I didn't mean it. That's why he says the word unintentional is not necessarily the best translation. Actually, Tim Heck goes on to say, this word does not describe one's attitude or intentions in the matter. Okay, When we say unintentional, it really isn't describing um, the person's attitude towards the sin that he's committed, but simply, he says, the class of sins for which there exists a prescribed sacrifice. In other words, it's just a technical category, the shbishkaga. The basic meaning of the word means mistake, and thus the English translator's word unintentional. It didn't mean to happen. It was not intentional. It wasn't meant to happen. It happened by mistake. And so, therefore, if you think about it, the person bringing the sacrifice can have one intention, and then a different result may happen. So you see how I mean that the word unintentional may not exactly point to the intent of the evangel. It's really just describing the category of sin. Tim Hegg goes on to say, the basic meaning of the word is mistake, and thus the English translator is unintentional. But it also simply means unacceptable behavior. It's something that shouldn't have happened. It was wrong. What is striking is that nowhere in the Torah are intentional sins described. Now we're going to contrast. Nowhere does the Torah actually say, here's an intentional sin, and then tells you what it is. Rather... Tim goes on to say, the opposite of so-called unintentional sin, that category, is the category what we call of a high hand. And the Hebrew is biyadrama, the sin of a high hand, as in Numbers chapter 15, verse 30, the incident uh, where the man gathered sticks um, uh, you know, on the Sabbath day 
and then the, the, the Torah talks about sinning with a high hand, and then we move right into the, the mitzvah about wearing tzitzit. Numbers chapter 15. Now, Tim goes on to say that this describes rebellion, this biadrama, the sin of a high hand. Picture, take your hand, take your left or right hand, doesn't matter, raise it up, close your fist, and kind of kind of wave it at, you know, wave it heavenward. That's kind of what we might think of the word picture that, co- that comes to mind when the Hebrew says Bayad Rama. The word Rama means high or elevated Rama. And the word Bayad means of the hand. So of the hand that is upraised, the upraised arm, the sin of a high hand. This describes rebellion, a sin for which there's no expiation. This describes the intention of the individual. This describes the attitude of the individual. And it's still a category sin. But God is able to see through to the heart of what's going on here. It's, it is rebellion, and for this, God says, no expiation for you unless you get your heart right. Thus, as long as a person persists in his rebellion, Tim Hague goes on to say, there is no means of forgiveness here, people. Only when this person turns from his rebellion and seeks atonement through the prescribed sacrifice is he in fact forgiven by God. The animals in and of themselves and by themselves cannot bring the required atonement that God says is offered. It requires a change of heart. It requires a broken heart. Rebellion is not allowed. There are therefore only two classes of sins described in the Torah, Tim Hague says. Bishkaga, usually translated unintentional, for which there is no expiation, and Biyad Rama, the high hand, for which... The, I'm sorry... Uh, I read that wrong. Bishgaga, unintentional, for which there is expiation, Tim Hague says, and Biyadrama, the high hand for which there is no expiation, end quote. I lifted that resource of Tim Hague's. You can see footnote number 16, uh, down to the bottom of page 12, uh, at uh, torresource.com, English articles under forgiveness. Let's continue. Levine, in the JPS commentary, continues to Leviticus to explain the Asham and the Chata'at. Let's keep reading. Quote, In substance, chapters 4 through 5 prescribe two principal sacrifices. What are they? The Chata'at and the Asham. The object of the Chata'at, usually translated sin offering, was to remove the culpability borne by the offender, that is, to purify the offender of his guilt. You can read chapter 4 of Leviticus, verses 1 through chapter 5, verse 13 to read about the Chata'at. All right? The Asham, usually translated guilt offering, was actually a penalty paid in the form of a sacrificial offering to God. Notice the language penalty. You ever been to court and had to pay a fine? Yeah, that's kind of what's going on, right? The Asham, it applied when one had unintentionally misappropriated property that belonged to the sanctuary or had been contributed to it unintentionally. In other words, he he gained something that wasn't his by mistake. Or, in certain cases, um, when one had sworn falsely concerning his responsibility toward the property of others, false testimony, a false oath brings God into the picture. Why? Because the oath is made to God. I swear, you know, in court session again, you raise your hand and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Typically, when you say that, where is your other hand? It's on the Bible. Right, we're bringing God into the picture. That's why the Asham is described this way. 
JPS goes on to say the sacrifice did not relieve the offender of his duty to make full restitution for the loss he had caused another person. Very important uh, phrase there. Just because God forgives us on the heavenly court doesn't mean that we don't have to um, remove, what do we say, remunerate, remunerate, hard word to say, we don't have to pay back that which um, was, was, was owed to uh, our fellow man, the person that we wronged. That's what it means to pay someone for services rendered or for work done. To pay them back, as it were, for something that we owe them. We we work for them, or I'm sorry, in the case of the, the phrase uh, remunerate, uh, re, or remunerate. Um, we pay someone for services rendered. Uh, in the case of where we wrong a, a certain man, we have to pay them back for that which we wronged them. The sacrifice did not relieve the offender of this duty. In fact, JPS goes on to say, the offender was fined 20% of the lost value. So if I steal $100 from my fellow man, whether I knew it or not, and then I get caught, according to the rules of the asham, right, then um, I not only had to pay him back the $100, but I had to pay him 20 more dollars, a fifth, 20%. So I had to pay him 120 bucks. That's what the Torah is trying to tell us here, okay? The Asham merely squared the offender with his God, whose name he had taken in vain when he swore to take this oath. And uh, so that's why we need to know the details about this. You can read chapter 5, verses 14 through 26 um, to read more about this particular uh, detail about the Asham. My uh, quote from JPS, if you'll see, footnote number 17, Baruch Levine, the JPS Torah commentary, Carry to Leviticus, Jewish Publication Society, 1989, again, page 18. Let us provide now a brief description of the Chata'at and the Asham, respectively, and then we'll bring this part of my commentary uh, to a close. Okay, just real brief. This section, or this paragraph, is entitled Chata'at, Sin Offering. The Sin Offering proper is a sacrifice consisting of either a beast or a fowl, and it's offered on the altar to atone for sin committed unwittingly. It's bishkaga. The rules concerning the sin offering are as follows. If the anointed priest of the whole congregation commits a sin through ignorance, well then the sin offering is a young bull without blemish. It's a larger animal. Should the ruler so sin, notice how we're going downwards in level of authority or or downwards uh, we're diminishing our level of um, leadership here in this example. Should the ruler so sin, his offering is a male kid without blemish, a smaller animal. But when a private individual sins, his offering must either be a female kid or a female lamb without blemish, or, if he's too poor to provide one of these, then a turtle dove is also acceptable as a chata'at, a sin offering. Okay? Sin offerings were brought on other occasions as well. Remember, on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, the high priest inaugurated the festival with two chata'ot, two sin offerings. We had a bullock as his own offering and then a male kid for the congregation. Those were both considered um, chata'at, sin offerings. The flesh of these offerings was not eaten. But after the fat had been removed, that chaleb, that forbidden fat, the carcasses were burned outside the camp. Uh, you can read about that in Leviticus 26, verse 3, verse 5, uh, and verse 10 uh, and 11, as well as verse 25 and 27 of chapter 26. Also, concerning the chata'at, a woman, after the days of her purification, remember when she was in Nida? And we can read about that in, later on in the Torah as well. 
after she had gone through this purification time period, after the end of it, she also was required to bring a dove for a sin offering, and it was called a chata'at. You're thinking, gosh, all she did was go into her menstrual cycle. Why is it called a sin offering? Well, it's a technical term for a technical korban. It doesn't necessarily mean that she sinned. Just like we talked about uh, earlier, the ola uses the language of sin in that um, offering, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the person sinned. In addition to a burn offering... Uh, this woman brought the chata'at. So she bought both a chata'at as well as an olah. A leper, by the way, on the day of his cleansing, and we read about him in Leviticus as well, uh, and also we read about him, yeah, just in Leviticus, a leper on the day of his cleansing was required to bring, besides other offerings, a female lamb, or if he were too poor, a dove for a sin offering, a chata'at. You can read about that in Leviticus 12, verse 6, as well as Leviticus 14, 10, Leviticus 14.19, and Leviticus 14.22. Finally, we have our, we're on our last offering. We've gone through four of them. Let's, let's hit the fifth one. The Asham, known as the guilt offering. This last little paragraph here. Uh, we're near the bottom of page 13. Torah.org is going to give us some information, some information concerning this last one. Quote, The Asham offering has many applications. Or the chatas is what they say. It is a sin offering. However, the asham atones for intentional sinning. Intentional sinning? Yeah, it's still a category, and it's not sins of a high hand. It's, it's slightly different than that. It's not biyad rama. It's not rebellious sin. But it is intentional sin. Swearing falsely is one such example. God is the unseen third party who is present whenever, wherever and whenever one man has dealings with another. That is to say, we don't want to we don't want to simply say that sins are unintentional. We don't. I'm sorry. We don't. We simply we don't want to simply say that lying, swearing falsely, uh, perjury, those things. We don't want to say simply that they are unintentional because typically when people do these things when they lie, they are they are intending to lie. So we we can say unintentional and intentional. It's kind of both. I'm not really trying to confuse you, but what I'm trying to say is it's not rebellious. It's not biyad ramat. It's not that category. It still falls under the category of bishgaga, unintentional. It was it was a mistake. It was a mistake. Um, swearing falsely is a mistake. Okay, lying is a mistake. It's something that shouldn't happen. It's something that is 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 wrong. Okay, it's 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 sins that shouldn't happen. That's what I mean by uh, unintentional slash intentional there. God is the unseen third party who is present wherever and whenever one man has dealings with another, even if no other witnesses are on hand. If you swear, then God is there because his presence is everywhere. God himself is the guarantor for the honest dealings between men. If three parties really involved, if I swear to my brother that I'm going to do something for him, God is the unseen third party. If, therefore, this guarantor is invoked... As a witness, if I say I swear by heaven, then any factor in these dealings has been disavowed. I'm sorry, when any factor in these dealings has been disavowed, I go back on my word after I've already sworn by heaven that I'm going to do it. Then is it not? it's not merely an act of ordinary faithlessness. It's not merely that I just broke faith with my fellow brother. I promised to do something for him. I swear by heaven that I would do it. I didn't follow through with my promise. I didn't do it. But also, I'm guilty before God. That's the point. In these cases, the offender has pledged his priestly character, his relationship to God, as surety for his honesty. End quote. That's what uh, 
Torah.org is trying to get us to see. And because of this, the asham needs to be brought into the picture. Okay, It's a little different than the sin offering, the chata'at that we just read about. A standard Judaic offering, or a standard Judaic definition of the asham uh, might read something like this. It's a guilt offering. It's an offering to atone for sins of stealing things from the altar for when you are not sure whether you've committed a sin or what sin you have committed or for breach of trust like we just described. Stealing things from the altar? <laughs> Come on, people. Who would steal from the altar? The Hebrew word for guilt offering is asham. When there was doubt as to whether a person committed a sin, the person would bring an asham. If he wasn't sure if he sinned or not. Because by admitting sin, then he brings a chata'at. But if he says, I'm not sure if I sinned or not, then an asham was brought rather than a chata'at. Because again, bringing a chata'at would constitute admission of the sin, and the person would have to be punished accordingly for it. See the difference between the two? If a person brought an asham and later discovered that he had in fact committed the sin after the fact, well then, oh yes, he would have to bring a chata'at at that time if it was proven that what he did was in fact a commitment of sin, and then he had agreed to it. Oh yeah, yeah, I did do that. Well then it automatically retroactively turns from an asham type of guilt to a chata'at type of guilt, and the uh, the type of offering changes. And asham finally was eaten by the koanim. That's another difference between the chata'at and the asham. The chata'at, if you remember, wasn't eaten by the priest. It was burned up on the altar and, and such, whereas the asham was actually eaten by the priest. And for now, that's going to do it on this section of the five types of korbanot. Okay, and with that, we will go ahead and uh, prepare to call this part B to the commentary to Yom Kippur. We have studied now, according to our uh, outline, if you remember, on the uh, syllabus top page, page one to the commentary, we've now gone through numbers one through six, which included the introduction to the study, and then we talked about the Ola, the Mincha, the Shlamim, the Chata'at, and now just recently we talked about the Asham. You also heard some information in there concerning the Ola Tamid, which was the eternal, uh, the, the um, twice daily burnt offering that took place um, once at the beginning of the day and once near the close of the sacrifices. Um, I didn't really do a separate study on that, on the, uh, the Tamid offering that takes place uh, twice a day, the two lambs that were burnt, one in the morning and one near the evening. If you'd like to hear that teaching, it's about 10 to 15 minutes long. It's near the beginning of Parashat Vaikra Part it's that first 10 or 15 minutes of that um, commentary if you want to go back and listen to that. We didn't include it in this commentary uh, because I'm not focusing on the Tamid offering. I'm focusing, I'm working my way up to the Yom Kippur offering itself. That particular Korban is what we're going to talk about. So um, for now, let's call this Part B, and when we return, we are poised to pick up the commentary uh, study. Let me just turn to it here. We're poised to pick up the commentary study on Yom Kippur at the top of page 6 with the section entitled Number 7, Apologetics Part 1. And again, 
much of the information that we're studying in my Yom Kippur commentary here today has already been looked at and studied in my commentaries, um, both the Parashat Vaikra as well as Parashat Achrimot. Both of those are found in the book of Leviticus. So much of the information will be repeat. Uh, for that reason, I'm going to borrow the audio information that I've already pre-recorded since the um, written notes are identical. Okay, stay tuned for part C.